Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Korba. I'm Kikita Kaori, and we have a special guest today, uh, continuing our three-part breakdown of the very huge uh, adventures in Rokugan. We have Mm -hmm. uh, Shannon Calvar, who is an experienced GM. He has multiple writing credits with Dungeons and Dragons and is our experienced GM in D&D 5th edition, as well as being very well aware of L5R. So, uh, you know, we're getting his perspective on things. In our previous uh, episodes on this, we've done a couple. We kind of broke down uh, the Adventures in Rokugan book. We looked at the first section with the uh, different species and classes and archetypes. And then in our next podcast, we talked about the backgrounds with each of the great clans and the various out of Rokugan groups and the non-human groups and some about feats and customizations and equipment. And today... We are tackling the last third of the book, which is talking about motivations and techniques and just kind of adventuring in Rokugan. And we do have one slight bit of news, which is that Rit of the Wilds has finally been seen and people have it and have looked at it. Yeah, it's been out for a little bit. We've got we to gotta review it. Yeah, so that's going to be upcoming. Um, sometimes the distribution is a bit spotty. Some people seem to be able to get hold of it quite easily and other people not so much. It's all very... Depends on exactly where you are. And uh, is Tomb of Ichiban out yet? I, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly, I'm, I'm pretty sure people have read it, but I'm not quite sure if it's other people who have got a, a previous access. So I haven't got my copy yet, but... Right, so let's get started. So um, I'm, I know nothing of this, so this is all going to be me asking questions or, or, or things like that. So the next section we're going to be looking at is motivations. So if you could run me through that. Okay. Um, so one of the things that they did in 5th edition is as part of your backgrounds, you got these... Um, statements, I guess you might say. They're, they talk about your ideals and your flaws, your the bonds you feel with other people. Um, and they might be things like, um, you know, I will get the job done or um, I don't trust other people. They're just these statements, role-playing statements about your character. They're ways to kind of flesh out who this person is. And theoretically, if you role-play at the table and you roleplay your bond, you get an inspiration. And we talked about how inspirations were this ability to just get advantage on a skill roll or check of some sort. So rather than rolling 1d20, you roll two and pick the higher of the two. So that sounds like a great idea (laughs) and might even be a great idea. But at the table, it can get a little weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, for example, my uh, my young, my oldest son was playing a sorcerer from a draconic bloodline, and he loved shiny things. That was his flaw. And people, he role played that very well and got a lot of inspirations for it. But uh, he 
uh, pretty covetous, actually. <laughs> and, you know, it got a little weird sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and so generally what, we're, what we found is, is very play, very table dependent. But the idea that there are mechanical-ish rewards for actually portraying something about your character is not terrible. Yeah, I, it, it's it's. I've seen it in a bunch of other role playing games as well. Um, like there are games where at the end you kind of go through and like, have you expressed this aspect of your character? Have you done something with this bond? And that those are literally experience points that you get for doing those things. Right. Well, that's that's in the um, Palladium, like the, the back when they you could you could still see the little cuts. From where they were lining things up on the to of you know to set them up for the duplication, uh, you know, role played well, fifty experience points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that in L five R, that is uh, what this does is trying to put back into Adventures in Rokugan some of the Nino Giri um, storytelling aspects of L five R, and so they require you to choose two of six kind of categories of these motivations. Um, they have bonds, desires, duties, fears, ideals, and regrets. And those two are supposed to be in conflict. And then you get inspirations when you're role-playing something that reflects those or a complication comes from that and they can change right so they one of the things they did was they simply separated them from the background uh which gives you a lot more flexibility by having you pick two they set it up so that there's an opportunity for conflict they give you a bunch of options and then on page 247 they actually say you know here's your category a bond conflicts with another bond with uh the two bonds are with characters who are in opposition to each other. You know, just, they just lay out dramatic, very basic dramatic conflicts for these contests between these two things. And that then gives you an opportunity just to do a little more role-playing, right? But it also, to, uh, to Ginny's point, kind of lifts up uh, some of that storytelling that they wanted to do originally. And you can see in the text where they got kind of uh, burned by strife uh, and unmasking because they're real gentle about the language. You know, it could be conflicts don't have to be important. They don't they could be minor narrative. <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 it can be bad. It's OK. <laughs> <laughs> and some classes uh, use inspirations as um fuel for their techniques, right? Like the acolytes, they use that. So if you're an acolyte, you need to be going full ham, I guess. Mm. <laughs> During the scenery. Absolutely. Well, well hey, if you're going to play a Tagashi monk, why not? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Especially if, if one of your desires is be mysterious and enigmatic. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um well, and fundamentally, it's never bad to have advantage, right? I mean, just mechanically, I've given a choice between rolling one d twenty and rolling two and picking the highest. Um, I, I'll, I'll take advantage every time. But 
but so there's a there is a drive here. And I, I think this fits in nicely with their overall theme, which we talked about going all the way back to you know, what they did with uh, the Code of Akoto, where they're, they're trying to create these oppositional forces where it as kind of a shorthand for game masters and players to pick up things and go, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And now I have a conflict. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think sometimes the extreme freedom in legend of the five rings can be a problem because while you can do anything, it's sometimes difficult to narrow that down to what uh, to get a very clear idea of what you want to do right now. And sometimes here are some really obvious options. You can do other things, but here are some stuff that you can just pick up and go immediately. I think that's a really good thing. Yeah. Games are complex, right? The, the, the effort of doing narrative storytelling is complex. Um, managing a group of players is complex. And being a player in a group of players is complex. And that's before you get to the game. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Just this this whole notion of what you mean, I can just say anything and my character will attempt that, is for people who haven't played role-playing games, that can be very intimidating. Whereas if you say, here are three things, pick one. And then later on, they start to say, is there a fourth thing I could do? Then you can say, yes, there is. But to have like a really obvious three things right off the bat is really good. Absolutely. Well, and it also, as you're sitting there trying to figure out what your players are going to do other than, you know, uh, have have a good conversation, the ability to say, okay, I want to put your need to be sincere against um, your bonds with these people gives me a really quick way of generating a scene as a game master. And that then allows me a lot more freedom to work on other things. So that's, I mean, from my point of view, right, a lot of these things have been excellent tools for game masters to run the kinds of stories that make Rokugan interesting. Yeah. How is it different? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, how is it different than I could choose something silly like Spelljammer, which is, you know, uh, sailing ships in space with. Uh, it, it's it's like a kitchen sink setting, only they've gone and found more sinks and more <laughs> kitchens and things that yes. aren't really kitchens and don't have sinks, but they're chucking them in anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's motivations. Uh, but that moves us on actually really well into techniques. Um, because techniques is where we start to see kind of the, we've talked a lot about how D&D, the D&D structure is very different than an experience point-based structure, right? It's a skill-based, or it's a level-based structure. We've talked a lot about this kind of narrative uh, questioning, and we've talked about some of the mechanics they've added, right? And so techniques is where we're going to start to see that all come together. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense that the next session then is about techniques. Um, and I thought this was really uh, thorough and really interesting. Um, it has so techniques are initially described as something you get can get along with your uh, level. There's two kinds of techniques that they really talk about in this section, which are the um, combat techniques and the spells, the the invocations. 
and basically this section, the technique section of the Adventures of Rokugan book uh, kind of, you know, spells out a whole ton of those, but also has some basic rules for how techniques work. And I liked those. They have, um, you know, a, a bunch of things on the area of effect for different kinds of techniques, whether it's a wave or um, kind of circles you or, you know, radius, very, all different kinds of ways of doing area of effect. Uh, and then, you know, who all gets hit and how much, you know, how much they get hit or how close they are to the center of it, depending on how big the effect is, uh, is all kind of right there on the board. Uh, there's no range bands in it's all grid. Um, so that was, that was pretty cool. And um, they also had two other rules that I thought that they had, they had a number of other rules, but the two that n noted was like techniques. If they're um, have the same name, their effect is not cumulative. You can't stack a biting steel or you know, a buff multiple times on a sword or things like that. They don't stack if they're the same name. And um, also it said you can't use advantage on multi-target attack rolls unless that's specified. So that's kind of related to um, inspirations that we were talking about for motivations when you, when you can use your inspirations to get advantage. You can't use them on big multi-attack rolls unless it says you can. So I actually wanted to talk really briefly about what techniques do, right? So wh why are they there in the first place? So... In D&D, or in a lot of role-playing games, right, we have these images in our heads of these great epic clashes, right? <laughs> you know, as, we are, as our characters are dancing across the battlefield and striking mighty blows. Uh, but if you actually stop and listen to what a role-playing game combat actually sounds like, it's, I roll to attack. I do 12 points of fire damage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And that's always been a challenge in gaming, right? Where you're trying to kind of balance between I need to be descriptive in what I'm doing, and I want to be descriptive because that's the fun, right? Uh, that great scene in uh, Lord in um, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings, when uh, Boromir pulls back and says, "They have a cave troll." I mean, <laughs> you know, that's that's what we're going for. Um, that sort of cinematic, imaginative battle, uh, whether it's in you know a, a style of a Kurosawa film or a style in a Peter Jackson film or whatever. Uh, maybe your preferred form is um, you know the Iliad. It doesn't matter. We're trying to create these images rather than talking about numbers all the time. And the techniques are, to one extent, a way of describing, giving you a tool to describe your attacks, right? Your your in, your actions in the combat. They're also a way of, remember way back when we were talking about uh, classes, uh, two of the fighting classes, the Bushi and the Duelist, get focus points. So techniques are a way of spending those focus points. So now in the battle, you have a dynamic game activity, right? It's not just I am using the attack that I have, but rather it is I am trying to build up focus points to perform specific techniques which then can narrative, I can then use as a narrative point to describe my character's actions. 
Um, that is a huge change from most D&D classes. Okay, so I've I've read some talk <laughs> talk online about how you know this is the way you know we we always imagined it was, uh, or you know this you know, I think this is a much more interactive way to run the, run a combat, and it is because now I have a refilling resource pool, focus points, right, and I'm making decisions about how to ref, refill those focus points. Um, so, but that then goes back to the com- the complexity, right? To what extent does this make it too complex to play? And I don't think I don't don't think this does. This is actually really well structured and it's well balanced. So um, I mean, I can see ways to break it, but you can break any you can break any game system. That's not the issue. Um, <laughs> uh, the issue is how can you imagine these working together? Now, one thing that I you know, even if you didn't play L five R, to be honest. Um, one thing that I would take from uh, Adventures of Rokugan and bring back into regular Dungeons and Dragons, because I think this is so good, is the the new conditions, right? Um, so uh, basically, Dungeons and Dragons has a bunch of conditions very similar to um, L5R, like, you know, Frozen or Petrified or... <laughs> Yeah, all, all kinds of conditions, but there's a bunch of new ones added in this game for um, that I think would be really good in regular um, Dungeons and Dragons too. So they add bleeding, uh, where basically a person, a creature that's bleeding, takes one d four piercing damage at the start of each of its turn, um, and disoriented means that. Disoriented creature can't make attacks of opportunity. Um, distracted is a negative two penalty to armor class. Maimed has a minus 10 movement speed and a disadvantage on dex throws. A like marked for death. I want to put that in regular L5R2. Um, a creature that is marked for death takes an additional 1d8 force damage the next time that the creature that marked it for death hits it with a melee attack. Um, so that... I think something like that could go back into regular um, L5R where you're basically as a different way of setting up an attack. It's just treating it as a status rather than keeping track of it separately. I just think it's uh, simplifying things. Yeah, a lot of the new conditions are actually already mechanically in standard D&D. They're just not treated as conditions. It's not a distinct status condition. It's an effect that's generated by a particular ability. And turning that into a status, a new condition is awesome, right? Because now everybody can use it. And it triggers Shinobi. Remember way back when we were talking, uh, Shinobi's version of sneak attack, that ability to do extra damage because I'm a sneaky rogue, um, is based off conditions. So the more conditions you can stack on an opponent, the more damage your Shinobi is doing. With their with their knife strike or whatever it is they're pulling off, uh, and so here you begin to see some of the efforts they're making to create uh, more easily recognizable um, combat options, right? Where you're sent combat synergy, because uh, most role playing games still you know live live their lives within part of or a large part of it within that kind of boundary of wargaming, 
Yeah, yeah. Basically, you, you act you act in your one turn, and that's it. And then everything, as far as you're concerned, shuts down until your next turn. But if you can set up a condition that then someone else can use that. The other thing it does is we have this feeling that uh, magic users are the only ones who get to do funky effects that last over time. Uh, you know, that's that's always been kind of true. So it's uh, when you change them into conditions, then it makes more sense to people reading about it to that that it works for non-magic users, you know, uh, fighters. I forgot a status too, which is weakened, which is the weakened creature loses damage resistances and its damage immunities become resistances, which is pretty cool. Mm. That that's awfully handy. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so let's just step back, and I'm I'm not going to go through all of these techniques for the martial side, but what I am going to point out is that for um, for these strikes, you need to or for the strikes just for all these techniques, uh, you need to pay very careful attention to what kind of an action it is, right? Because in in D and D, we have your action, you have your bonus action. You have your move action, and you have your reaction. Um, and if, if you, there's plenty of design space here. But one of the things that they did is that they also split out so that sometimes these techniques only take one attack. So if I'm a character with multiple attacks, I can be choosing between techniques that ha- take my action, so they replace my attack. I can select an I can choose to make an attack and then replace some or all, depending upon how much focus I've decided to build up, of my regular attacks with techniques. <laughs> um, if I have reactions, if I have my reactions still, I could choose to u- save some focus points to use a reaction. Um, I don't see any here that take your move action, but nevertheless, you can imagine techniques that would do that. Uh, and that... <sighs> And that kind of math is very normal in a D&D game, right? Because you, you have your four actions and you're trying to figure out how to use them best. Technically, you also have a free action, but... Um, <laughs> they tend to be very minor, yeah. Yeah, they tend to be very minor or they... Anyways. Um, and that so that that kind of play is going to become very important, especially as they add additional techniques over time, which I fully would expect them to do. Um, as we've mentioned, this book is way they're trying to they, they shoved a lot into this book. <laughs> so. Um, all right. So, Jeannie, any other thoughts on techniques? I don't have too many more on techniques other than that's where you will find all your classic uh, L5R uh moves you've got your heart piercing strike you'll have your all of all of those things that uh at least fifth edition l5r is kind of built up to be how you know how fighting is done all of those things are kind of translated in one way or another into techniques so that's kind of what that is about so you can still have the same flavor yeah yeah it's it's all there so with uh Invocations, though, uh, one of the big concerns people have had is for um, 
the uh, spellcasters, uh, you know, Shigenja equivalent, which are the ritualists. And they have, uh, they use uh, invocations as their technique and they spend focus to do it. And even though people are complaining, you know, people are saying, oh, it's it's so expensive, it's hard to cast cast these things. Uh, there's a lot of those invocations in the book that have uh, a base focus cost of zero. Uh, so if it's a base focus cost of zero, then you can use it like a cantrip. You can just use it over and over and again without pouring any cost into it. So there, yeah, yeah. So the favor that you use isn't to cast it, but to improve it in some now way. Some and and the big damage ones in particular do use favor to cut to cast, but it's worthy of note that the ones that do not cause uh, favor to cast, but are like buffs for your teammates and stuff. Those are more often zero favor cost. So there's a plenty good reason, finally, <laughs> for your uh, ritualist, your, your Shigenja, basically, to buff your teammates, which has always been kind of a flaw with um, flaw with Shigenja in L5R, in that I have so many things that I want need to spend my actions on. Right, I can't. I can either cast this spell that does a whole lot of damage and, you know, that is strong or with that same action in the action economy, uh, I can I can buff my teammate and then they can use it. And there's always at least a turn of uh, advantage to just do the damage yourself. Um, because to buff my teammate is a two, <laughs> two round to get the benefit. Cost as opposed to yeah 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 I mean it, it's true in in, in standard D and D as well it is almost always better to directly damage right. but if the buffing spells cost zero and the damaging spells cost favor then you do it so that you you buff your teammates on your zero on and save your favor for the big fights later mm. yeah. <sighs> Fundamentally, in any game where you're fighting something, uh, the best status effect is dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I, there's lots of status effects. The best one is dead. And whatever advances you towards it is probably the one you want to choose. Um, so, but the other thing that's kind of, it, they, they did a lot of work here trying to move um, magic from, I am doing all of the big things all of the time to I am supporting my party, and then every once in a while, I'll throw down. Uh, the other thing they did is they inserted a concept called resonance. Okay, so I'm just going to take Armor of Stone, right? This is your, this is literally the first spell there, part of why I selected it now. Uh, actually, I just thought it was, it was very on point for the conversation. Okay, so this spell costs an act, takes an action to cast. It has a base favor cost of one. So I can't just automatically cast it. Unless I'm standing outdoors in rocky terrain. So there's a bunch of rocks around. Then I have what's called a resonance. So I get one bonus favor. So now it costs me my action to cast it, not any favor. <laughs> um, or I'm in a cavern or edifice primarily made of stone or dirt. So I'm not standing in a wooden building, I'm standing in a stone temple. Yeah, so it's uh, very situational. Right. 
Well, so that gives me now options, right? And it goes back to what I was talking about in terms of the story, um, you know, and telling the story. Because now I have, if I'm using a map or if I'm describing what I'm doing, I my Shigenja doesn't just stand there, my ritualist. I'm looking around. I'm going, okay, I need to cast Armor of Earth. Where is their rocky terrain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm standing here in, in a, we're, we're fighting in the traditional stream. You know, I'm on the riverbank. I'm looking around. Where can I find some rocky terrain that I can get into? Where Where's there like rocks and boulders and things? And so now I describe my movement. I run to the, I run over to the rocky outcropping. Leaping up onto it, I cast Armor of Earth. And for my description, I now get a bonus. Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um. So, absolutely. I, the, the, uh, and then we get the question of, you know, can I empower these spells? So, way back when, way back when, way, way, way back when, um, in a Dragon Magazine article back in the 80s, I read about this idea of somebody proposed that you could cast spells at higher levels, right? So, if I had a magic missile, I could cast it at a higher level and do something different. And that actually becomes codified into Dungeons and Dragons eventually. Um, I mean, goodness knows I used it in the first book I wrote for Mongoose Publishing back in the day. Um, and so now we have this idea that, so that's already there, but now I can spend additional favor. So I want it to be better. Um, so I might spend three favor with Armor of Earth to create a seal of jade to drive off evil enemies. Um, that I mean, that's just all that that's that's great. And here we're now. And because we've chosen good language, right, I call upon the favor of the Kami and I imprint a, a seal of jade onto your armor of earth, which then drives away, uh, you know, fallen lost foes. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and more importantly, it gives me a narrative story. So you're so you're doing it both both ways. So um, if, if people are concerned that ritualists are weak what they need to be looking at and they are weaker and they are weaker than certainly they're weaker than shiginja the in in regular l5r um what you need to be looking at is a realize that you do have zero favor cost things that you can just cast as cantrips and cantrips are powerful but look at them as more a means of supporting your group um and uh helping helping your teammates out and that's a really important thing to do if you want to do more and you want to do it easier you need to be looking for the situation you need to be you know can i make a sacrifice for favor can i which is in uh 5th edition L5R2 um but uh you know can I, can i make a sacrifice for for more favor can i go to a place with with residents for more favor can i uh pray for more favor so with we've talked about uh, how channeling wasn't uh, described in the core book but it is um described as a technique that you could as as a, a class ability uh in the errata that's coming out but we did find out that it was you know take during a short rest you can earn more favor so um Basically, you have a lot of ways of learning, earning favor. What you don't have 
is that whole, I am going to cast my biggest, hugest spell right off the bat every fight, which would be the most sensible thing to do in regular L5R. So it's a change of approach. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, people have been saying that the, they actually very much like the different balance between marshals and casters that we're getting in Adventures in Rockland because the stuff you're talking about, you know, between Shigenja and non-Shigenja is pretty true of casters and non-casters in D&D, as well as in Elfhadar. And so it's, so having a better balance, I think, is going to end up with some people feeling like they're, the casters feel weak, but there are, it's more that I think that the balance is better from the sounds of things. Not not having had an opportunity to play it myself. It it seems like it is a it is better balanced. Um and that's to some extent this was a decision they made with fifth edition that I'm still not I, I still don't necessarily agree with. Um they del- in way back when, uh you know wizards were very, very weak. You know, we're talking now down, back in the days of D4 hit points, right? Um, and they became very, very strong right at the end, right? That was... In, an investment. Yeah, an investment, basically. Yeah. Um, and in 5th edition, they decided to go back with some of that. 5th edition L5R or 5th edition D&D? D&D. D&D. Yeah. It, was actually, yeah. it was actually a deliberate design choice, and it's one I'm... I'm still very much on the fence about, but it's what they did. And the other thing that they did, which was a little bit irritating, is they then kind of, I wouldn't say they hid, but they didn't explain very well uh, how to build a controller or how to build a buffing character other than a healer. But they put all the tools in place. (laughs) So if you want to play a controller, you can do that. You just have to figure out how on your own. Um, this is Dungeons and Dragons. This is Dungeons and Dragons, right? Here they're being a lot more open about which classes do what, right? Um, and that makes it easier on a player. You, I, I like things that are easy, um, so that they can you can figure out what it is you're trying to accomplish, and you can figure out oh that's this class, that's this class, as opposed to having to you know, bury yourself in the spell lists for two weeks. Uh, trying to figure out how to put together a controller druid. Because <laughs> um, that's just not obvious. Um, so I, I'm very happy with a lot of this. Mm-hmm. So I like I, I like having um, more support-focused ritualists in Shigenja. I, I think that uh, so much of... L5R storytelling is about the Bushi and they just end up being very overwhelmed. So I really, I really like, like that, but there's certainly never a point where a well-structured ritualist has nothing to do, which I cannot say is true for other classes. And I I think this, one of the things I I mentioned way back is that I think this brings the balance or, or at least the come the mechanics feel a bit more like someone who is communing with spirits as opposed to just a wizard, which is what the mechanics have always been in Legend of the Five Rings. Right. 
Uh, and I, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, and I, that goes all the way back to Imperial Edition, right? Where your Shigenjas were attaching spell scrolls. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that's back what we the did. Card game, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, maybe we're not supposed to talk about that, but yeah, I mean, that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think I think maybe this is. I mean, there, there are some ideas in here that do sound I mean, like I've not read things out, unfortunately. Um, but they do sound almost like ideas I want to bring back into mainstream the L five R game to give the Shugenja a bit more of a feel of someone who's communing with spirits as opposed to someone who just has a spell list, which is how they're playing. For people who are interested in that aspect but want it for their roll and keep systems i think it's worth looking at and thinking about and maybe bringing back some of these ideas um back into l5r but we did want to go on we won't talk about specifically each individual spell because that's silly and we're already been silly enough with this book um <laughs> the next <laughs> section is about adventure adventuring in rokugan and um, this this section is about, well, this has sections on duels. It has a lot of recommendations for adventuring. And this has a history of Rokugan and a map. So uh, for the general uh, adventuring recommendations, a lot of it is like just campaign ideas and stories. And, and also what Shannon has been saying all along about um, setting up these conflicts between different aspects to kind of bubble out stories um, and taking taking that into a story engine. Um, so there's sections on having samurai or ronin or commoners or outsiders at adventures, uh, fighting for ideals and different, uh, just all different classic themes of L5R that, um, you know, all of, all of the stories have been about, but trying to communicate L5R style stories to a non L5R playing audience. And I think it does uh, an okay job of that, especially if you read it and think about it. This is the section that I, you know, I, I enjoyed the most, right? I mean, I, I'm a geek. I'm, I'm a game geek. I, I like game systems. They're fun. Um, but here you actually have somebody trying to describe how, um, how is Rokugan different, right? Um, how is it not just uh, Forgotten Realms or your own personal homebrew? How is it something that is that allows you to tell a different kind of story? And what does that mean? So that that's actually kind of exciting for me because I sort of wish they had put all put the uh, the Code of Kodo uh, section. Uh, and some of the other, you know, some of the, the motivation section, I wish you could just put them all together so you could actually see how it all worked together. And I know why they didn't, right? I know why they're spread out structurally, but eh, it'd be nice just to have all these pieces together so you could go, okay, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> the, the next section is about duels. And it hopefully, maybe you, Shannon, can talk us through uh, a little bit about how they actually do running a duel with the danger dice and all, because I wasn't quite sure how the danger dice and postures all work together. Okay. Um, 
I've been pretty effusive about the rules, uh, yeah, but very enthusiastic. I'm not sold on dueling, to be honest. I've actually run a couple of couple of duels, both with um, kind of low-level characters, with mid-level characters. So figure your average D&D game get, sort of peters out around 10, level 10, and then with some high-level characters. Um, and so here's the idea. Um, you're going to, you and the game master, your character, your character's going to declare a duel. Remember, there's a whole class called Duelist uh, that actually has special abilities. But anybody can, as a bonus action, declare a duel. Um, and when you declare this duel, every round, um, you and the game master are going to hold these D6s, right? This is called the stare down at the start of each round. Um, each participant in the duel, so there's theoretically more than one participant, but that's not really the way the rules are laid out, is going to hold a D6 in their hand, and they're going to reveal a number between one and six, right? And the character with the highest number takes a decisive posture and gets to attack first, regardless of initiative order. And the character with the lower number takes the watchful posture, uh, which basically means they act on their own initiative. But the character with the higher number is assigned danger dice equal to the number revealed by the character with the low number. So the character with the low number reveals a one, the character with the high number reveals a six, and... I get one danger dice and get to act first. And danger dice, well, let, let's just stop for a second. Let's not even care what these things do. Okay, that breaks the flow of combat something fierce, right? And it introduces another guessing game into the dynamic between the players and the game master. I am, I personally am somewhat dyspraxic, okay? <laughs> when the flow gets broken, I get confused. More importantly, I'm not sure why this guessing game is here. I'm not sure what it's intended to do, right? Here, I'm the relationship between game master and player in a combat is somewhat adversarial already. And now I'm going to introduce another layer of competition into it. I'm not sure that's good design. And I realize that they took this from the Legend of the Five Rings card game and blah, blah, blah. But I, I don't so think this is good design. What do? Well, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm, so, I'm just irritated by it. Okay, so what happens is after a character makes an attack roll that hits, so I, I have my sword, I get to act first, and I attack. Before rolling the damage dice, they can spend all of the target's danger dice and add in the damage roll as extra damage. If their opponent hit points would then be reduced to zero by the attack, they can choose a couple of special abilities. And then the, if they don't actually kill their opponent, the, the opponent's danger dice transfer to them. So now I've got, now I'm keeping track of my focus points. I'm keeping track of my stance. I'm keeping track of who I'm going to duel with. I'm revealing dice. And now I have this dice pool that's flowing back and forth. Um, okay, that's great from a, I mean, okay, so this is going to whittle down large hit point pools pretty quickly, and it does. But there's, that's a lot of stuff happening in addition to techniques, in addition to, in addition to. I, I think this one's, it's not terrible, but this one's, I, I, I hate to say it, is a swing and a miss. So, so. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the danger dice. So if I have, if I've built up five danger dice on me, um, for, because I went first, 
and I picked a six and they got a one and now I have five danger dice on me. No, no, you, you only have one. You would just have the one. It's not the difference. Let me reread that. Sure. Yep. Equal to the number revealed by the character with the lower number. So if he, if he, he showed a five and you showed a six, right? You would have five. Okay. So I would have, then I would have five danger. All right. So let's say I have five danger dice on me because he picked five and I picked six. All right. Then uh, when he strikes me. Because he strikes first. Right. Then he gets to add 5d6 extra damage. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And if that doesn't kill you, which it probably won't if you're more than a low level character, the dice get transferred. Right. So he then picks up those dice. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the arguments I've heard about this, there's zero reason to choose anything other than six or one, ever. Ever. Well, like, I, I, yeah. I, from, from sound things, you're either going, I definitely want to go first, and I'll take, I'll, I'll take whatever risk there is. Or I definitely don't want to go first. You know, if, or, you know if, if I don't definitely want to go first, then there's no reason for me to choose anything but one, as far as I can see. There, there really isn't. Well, in this case, if you are sure that your opponent will, wants to go first and you don't care, then what you should actually pick is five. <laughs> because if you think you'll survive the first opponent's blow. Because <laughs> that way... Because then you can do five extra mm. damage on them, right? Well... Like if you're sure, like if you're sure right. they'll miss... If you, or if you show, you'll just survive it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, well, maybe, maybe but th- my point—I guess my point is—this is supposed to be happening as part. The the other thing to realize is this is actually if this was just by yourself, right? It's you and your opponent, the two of you staring at each other. That would be—I I, I still think it's pretty clunky. If if you stopped everything else, then sure. But this is this is more like a clash. In in Legend of the Five Rings fifth edition terms, there is there is a, still the standard combat going on around you, and so this is all extra stuff that you need to take care of while still taking care of and thinking about standard combat round stuff. And that's the problem with dueling in in. Uh regular L5R2 with the clash is like what do, what happens with the whole rest of the combat that's going on now they do have in here um all the different kinds of duels um so they have you know legal duels and uh you know they have a better section on how to do legal duels and setting the terms and stuff than FFG <laughs> you know the the uh fifth edition book does so that is really, um, it, it's, it's simpler language. It's more clear. Um, it has all the different breakdowns of different kinds of duels. And, and it's kind of spelled out how it works. They actually talk about sparring bouts uh, as informal combat. You know, some of this just simply should have been in the fifth edition books. Period. It, you know, no matter what the dueling rules are here, they just should have had this spelled out in, in the regular books, and they didn't, which is kind of disappointing. The actual talking about duels is great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, if you want to know about, you know, 
what what happens when you do overt influence or stealthy cheating in a duel? Hey, we've got information about that finally. And how to keep the group involved? All of that. It's so much better here than in the in the books, which is for me, especially as a as a crane player, is particularly painful because this is the stuff. This is the stuff that should have been in courts of stone and it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can only assume that the the Scorpion book is all going to be about courts and and um, all that courtly drama stuff because they got the Ninja book in Court Stone. <laughs> but I expect it. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, yeah. Because I think it's it's a thing we we often get discussions on in on the L five R Discord about how duels are supposed to work and what are, the, what are we supposed to do and what if you do this and what if you do that? And I think an awful lot of that sounds like it's being dealt with here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they, they made... Yeah, yeah. If... The, ignoring the mechanics, just having a good description of the... Um, you know, what happens in ritual duels, right? I mean, you, you have that information now. The, the, the section is awesome. The, the 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 discussion of dual like so anyways yeah. um that's where i am yeah uh, oh and i'm a little heartbroken but oh the other thing is d6s are just not big enough for high level high level play so mm. if your character intends to use dueling as part of their strategies you are picking up at least 3 if not if not 5 levels of duelist um which is fine just um yeah, there's. It's just not going to work. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a D and D hit point thing where, oh no, someone has stuck up behind me and stabbed me with their sword. Yeah. I'm basically fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just that it's just the way the mechanics work. Um, and you know, like them or lump them, hit points have been part of it for a long time. So sure. I mean, I mean, as a rogue player, I, I always almost play rogues. And after point, you kind of go, oh, yes, I get my sneak attack. And it's like, yeah, look, all these D6s are old. It's like, <laughs> uh, it's not really helped much, has it? Can I get a plus five dagger, please? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So here we go. And now we move on to the section of the history of Rokugan. The history of the Rokugan is very much uh, like uh, the history that has been in regular L5R. There's not a whole lot of new stuff, but certain aspects have been toned down or or shifted um, in that, uh, like, Battle of White Stag is a, you know, trade dispute that ends up with foreigners exiled and an empress killed uh, by gunpowder. But... It spells out that this then goes back and forth with, um, you know, if opinion towards foreigners changes uh, as uh, uh, over time. So it's not always this way, but it does does have it this way for now. All right. Um, there's a, a lot of uh, focus on the dragon and phoenix, you know, m- as uh, primary movers and shakers, I would say, 
um, maybe more than in regular L5R. Um, I I object to this. The dragon neither move nor shake. Uh, How dare! It does, it does focus on that. <laughs> it's probably good that they they. It's probably good that they have stuff to do. I think part of that is just these the. It basically has been tweaked to accommodate the fact that the outside of Rokugan is developed a little bit more and developed a little bit differently uh, to integrate that into the history of Rokugan, but not in a way that actually significantly changes um, Rokugan itself. Um, you still have, you know, tournaments, you still have Ichiban, you still have the Maw, you still have the return of Ichiban, just all different kinds of things the return of the unicorn um it, now this section has filled with a bunch of little uh flashpoints um that are places where you could say have an adventure here and it talks about the what the little adventure is and what the themes are um it goes right up to uh the elemental balance imbalance which you know is 1060 to 1123 so just the the last period of 100 years um it has a good little breakdown of the perfect set land sect coming up recently so i mean it it's it does not mention the tsunami uh which is the the most recent big event that i think is a good um campaign trigger but it has everything else so it's it's pretty solid history um I don't know if you had anything, Shannon, for it. I thought it was fine. <laughs> I, I, it, I, I am not obviously a L5R purist in any sense of the word. Um, but I, the thing that I noticed is that they actually spent a little bit of time with each section making sure you had some adventure hooks. Yeah, uh, yeah. Going back to kind of what I've... It kind of, the, I guess, my theme here is they're trying to make this easy for you to pick up and play it. And play it as something different than what you usually play. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate that even in their history section, they're taking the time to to make it different. Because so. other, otherwise, that section is kind of interesting, mm -hmm. but not hugely useful. Right. You know, it, it's interesting background knowledge, but how does that affect actual play? But if you have things like, well... Here's how you could run an adventure in this, or that's that makes that much more engaging right there, right? And and so I'm absolutely in favor of that. I mean, I'm that just it makes it simpler. And the next section is a really nice atlas, kind of you know talking about just the kinds of terrains that are there in the geography. But it goes through the lands of each clan, um, it and it has descriptions of the terrain and a few places related to each family many of them are new there are the beautiful maps from each of the uh, ffg source books so far for each of the clan lands which means it has a beautiful scorpion map a beautiful unicorn map even those those aren't out yet i think that these maps uh have a few more um even areas on these maps than um, ones in the FFG book, even potentially. Uh, at least they they really are, look solid. 
um, and I really like them. And they do have a few adventure suggestions. Then each of these uh, clans lands have a location that is actually drawn out. That means it actually has a location map of that specific location with the different areas on it. So like for crane for crab it has watchtower of iron duty and it has all how one of these uh wall watchtowers look with you know map as a resource. And these are all done similar in style to like the Akota War College uh, map in uh, Fields of Victory. And that, in fact, is the lion um, location, specific location. There is Conde Castle in, and the port that never sleeps in, in the crane section. Um, there's uh, Mountain Song Temple in the dragon section. Uh, Morning Glory Castle in Phoenix. I think that's in Celestial Realms. Um, and it also has uh, Laughing River Village for Scorpion and uh, Lost Monk Road Station for Unicorn. Um, so these maps are nicer than, uh, you know, for some of these. These are the same maps for some of these locations that are in the different uh, supplement books for FFG. But as I said, some of them didn't have, didn't have that. Uh, and so they're, they're nicer. I liked seeing Conde Castle in the port that never sleeps. So, so I appreciated that they've got a a little like adventure seed to to go off of theirs. So, I always like good maps; they're awesome. <laughs> yeah, love a good map. Well, and this puts them in. Well, I was just going to say, just structurally, um, this is also kind of how they're trying to show. If you think about like the Forgotten Realms books and all of the really detailed campaign settings, right? This is them trying to show that they have that too, right? And importantly, they can do a lot of that out of existing asset. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes it a lot cheaper. Anyways, yeah. uh, <laughs> we've got piles of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> So I just wanted to comment on that because it's important. And then the last part is they they do have a little adventure here. Um, This is more or less Mask of the Oni, uh, which is the FFG version of the the adventure that came out with the Shadowlands supplement for Crabland. So it's going into Crabland and finding Haruma Castle and dealing with what you find there. So it is a straightforward adventure. Uh, the people, I have not played it, um, but the people who I have heard who've played it said that their players had a good time with it. So I'm, and I think it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good solid adventure uh, if it was the FFG version. So I expect it to be so in this version. And it doesn't really matter what kind of, Characters you can you can do it with Ronan, you can do it with Naga, you can do it with any any group of characters, which would be very different if you're trying to do a, a winter court group or something. It would be more complicated. So so they don't necessarily set you up to do any politicking, but this is one that you will definitely have some fighting for. So that's good for an intro adventure. And and then it has a bunch of NPCs at the end. <laughs> Okay. So that's what you want. I think it's a overall very good 
book to work with. Um, I think it has. I honestly think it is worth getting as an FFG only player, if only to think about and bring things, certain aspects back into your game. As long as you're not going, oh, you know, D&D is evil and I must hate everything in this book just because it's Dungeons and Dragons. You have to look for the for the good in it if you're trying to purchase it to supplement your roll and keep. But I think it really does a good job of trying to get L5R, like real L5R, like we know it, into Dungeons and Dragons. So that was the goal. I think it meets it. Uh-huh. So I think that's, that sounds like a... Uh, conclusion to Adventures in Rock again. If that's what they were trying to do, they succeeded. If they had a if they had a different design goal, then um, who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this podcast, Shannon. Um, so it was good to talk Dungeons and Dragons with a pro. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> uh, oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's it's been really good, and hearing your your take on it has been very instructional. So, I would like to give a shout out to our sister podcast, Fortune and Strife, our affiliated actual play podcast. Now in episodes, yeah, episodes coming out, and in fact, they are recruiting. So, if you look out on Twitter and on the Discord and the Rogan subreddit, you can find out stuff there. And we should also give a shout out to our friends at D20 Radio, who do a whole heap of role-playing game-related podcasts. And so if there's anything you're interested in, you'll find it at D20 Radio. Our content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs, as well as our website hosting. And on our website, you can find long-term information. So we've got summaries of podcasts, we've got RPG tools, and much more. And for our Patreon supporters, you have special bonus content like Adventure Seeds and early access to Fortune and Strife episodes. And in fact, also priority if you're interested in becoming a cast member. Yes. And we wanted to give some special shout outs to some of our newer Patreons. We have Hannah P. Thank you very much, Hannah. We appreciate you listening to us. Benjamin W. Thank you, Benjamin. It's great. We're so happy to have you supporting us. And uh, and Mike W., thank you for being a supporter of the L5R Discord and our various uh, podcasts, Fortune and Strife and Core Games. We're really grateful. Yeah. Online, you can find us at our website. We're at courtgamespod.com. We are in the process of trying to move to a new host because we keep running out of capacity on our current host. So... We'll probably still be at the same URL, but things, you know, there's some in construction signs posted on the website. On Twitter, you can find us at twitter.com slash courtgamespod and on Patreon at patreon.com slash courtgames. But uh, that's it for us this week. This is Kikita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I have been Korva. And until we meet again, keep your jade handy.
Radio, where gamers roll.